So people actually were wanting to see their leaders being held to account. You know, it, it creates a bit of a an us versus them world where leaders aren't having to be accountable for achieving goals, but employees are expected to. And people don't trust that situation. So if if we want our people to do what we want them to do, we also have to show that we do stuff as well. You know, no one wants a boss that sits around on his chair all day and does nothing. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Agnell, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. So my guest on today's episode of the Inspire Podcast is Marie-Claire Ross. And Marie-Claire joins me all the way from Australia. Uh, What time is it down there where you're on this call? It's 6 a.m. 6 a.m. Well, thank, thank you for waking up to talk to me. And uh, Marie Claire is a speaker, she's a facilitator, she's a coach, and her company is called Trustology. She's written a book called Trusted to Thrive. And uh, in our in our prep, I was really excited to have you on because you really talk about, you know, what leaders must do to create safety, you know, psychological safety and, and safety for people to feel that they can build trust. And then how to balance creating that with holding people accountable. So in this in this climate where everyone is trying to create deep relationships with their team, I'm really excited to welcome you to the Inspire Podcast. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Bart. Wonderful to be here. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful to have you. You know, you know psychological safety is one of these terms that's become kind of the hot button. Uh, you know, you, you kind of can't open a, a book on leadership or a magazine talks about what people want without hearing about you know how to create psychological safety and, and trust goes hand in hand with that. So yeah, excited, excited to delve into how you create trust. But maybe um, before we get there, uh, take me back to how you came for, came to the point where you, you wrote this book, Trusted to Thrive, and how you've, you've done work to help people build trust. What's your story that led you to this point? Yeah, well, a few years ago, I was running a video production company with my husband and we had staff and I was also creating large induction training programs for companies. And I I had it was really fascinating that I kept hiring people that young kids you could say Mm -hmm. who came from dysfunctional backgrounds and they would actually help us run we were filming live greyhound racing and they were in regional areas and we found that young teenagers were actually perfect for this type of work if we hired uh, an experienced camera operator they really struggled to film a greyhound because they go so fast and they just had trouble. Anyway, so we had these these a group of young people working for us over a few years, and and they always came from dysfunctional homes. Uh, some of them had ended up with mental health issues when they worked with us, 
And I, you know, learned to create a nurturing environment for them. And so it was quite interesting that I was doing work for big corporate companies and discovered that leaders weren't looking after their staff the way I was, um, which might sound a bit weird, but there was this pivotal moment where I was creating this big online induction training program, manual handling, for this manufacturer that had 3,000 staff across Australia and New Zealand. And I was working with all these different levels of people in this company from the leadership team to training manager, safety manager, production manager, all sorts of managers. And on the day we went on site to film the staff on the factory floor, it was quite interesting that the staff weren't very friendly. Hmm. And that was quite unusual because usually when the film crew turned up, everyone was excited to see it. Um, you know, it was, you know, it was always the joke, oh, we're going to be in Hollywood, all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. Right. But, but, but these employees weren't that excited. And hmm. when I listened to their conversation, there very much was this us versus them language about any sort of leader. Hmm. And two weeks after we finished up filming, they actually went on strike. And when... A couple of months later, when the program was launched across Australia and New Zealand, the EGM, um, I actually rang him to see how the launch was going. And he said, oh, it's going okay, but sometimes a couple of the guys, uh, they take the little employee handbook that we created and he goes, oh, they're throwing them in the bin. <laughs> and he kind of said it in a way. In a, in almost like, in a casual oh, sense, like this wasn't something like... Indicative of a major problem. <laughs> yeah, and I was shocked and, you know, I took it upon myself that it was my fault, you know, I must have designed them wrongly mm-hmm. or um, whatever. Uh, but at the time I had this blog and I was writing a lot and creating content and I was doing a lot of research into supervisors and I called back and I said, look, supervisors are the linchpin between senior leadership mm-hmm. and the front line. We never got them involved. Hmm. And so the whole way through, all of, even though I've met so many people when creating this training program, I never spoke to a supervisor and they never were, in, you know, used to kind of influence mm-hmm. the front line. And it, it ended up just feeling like for employees it was another thing being done to them, not for mm-hmm. them. And then I realized, well, trust is the issue. And I told them that and, and they were kind of mm-hmm. like, what are you talking about? Uh, but I, I made the decision that this was something that meant so much to me that I was going to start a company. Hmm. Uh, and that's what I did back in 2014. Hmm. And that when you sent out to start the company, was the, com- was the mandate really to teach people why trust was important, to teach them how to build it or all the above? Yeah, and just to give leaders the skills to do it because I was just shocked that they didn't consider it. And, and because a lot of the work I was doing was around communication, mm-hmm. uh, I, I just felt that trust was at the heart of everything that they were doing, but they didn't even realize they needed to build it. And that shocked mm-hmm. me. Um, so I, in my um, naivety, decided that they needed to learn. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that. They should trust you. <laughs> the world, 
Exactly. Yeah. Well, the thing was, I don't think the world was really ready for it back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a hard message to sell, but, you know, um, we're at a different time now. And, you know, COVID's been quite interesting because it's really showed that employees want to see evidence that their their leaders care about them. Yeah. And, I, you know, in your in your book, there's there's a um passage I want to read here because it really, you know, kind of hit home, right? This is from your, your chapter on, you call it trust the rocket fuel to the achievement zone. And, you know, you've got this, this section where you say, you know, tr- trust is at the cornerstone of all relationships. We sense its presence in healthy relationships and its absence when relationships turn sour. And later on, you said, you know, trust is essential and without it, social groups can't function properly. And I, and I don't think, you know, so that's, that definitely resonated, but I think something else you said resonated with me. I want to ask you for your insight. Everyone, no one would disagree with the importance of trust and the importance of being trusted. But why do you think, why was it that the concept of having to build trust was something that leaders just didn't think about? And still to this day, I know maybe it's changing, but why don't people think about building trust in and doing so intentionally? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for a lot of leaders, they think, well, I'm a leader. I tell people what to do. Um, I've got the title leader. Mm-hmm. Just people have to get things done. And, and they don't realize that there is a bit of work that has to be done to influence people. Mm-hmm. And we do, it's, it's that old style leadership that's command and control mm-hmm. and hierarchical, uh, which, you know, we've realized is the wrong way to go about things. But even when people know that, they still revert to that. Hmm. Um, it's quite interesting because uh, for some people it's not really natural. Hmm. to build trust first. They just think they need to just tell people what to do. Right. And as you said, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work, right? So it's almost a seductive idea to think, well, I have the title so I can just tell them what to do, right? I, why, why put the work in? <laughs> yeah. And, and that's just it. Like it's, um, it's interesting. I was running a workshop with a leadership team last week and they did one of my uh, assessments and one of the scores that this team rated really low on was that they, they're not interested in each other personally. Hmm. And in the workshop I was facilitating, they were arguing with me that culturally that's what they do. Uh, they don't really um, talk about personal lives. It's okay. something that you keep private. And they couldn't quite get that by doing that with each other in the senior leadership team, it meant that they were doing that with their employees. Uh, And, you know, people want to be seen, they want to be valued and appreciated. Mm -hmm. And when you have a leader that just asks, you know, as simple as how was your weekend, uh, it, it shows that they care about you as more than just say a tool of productivity. Mm And that's something that you mentioned that COVID has really accelerated, you know, this idea that people are expecting more of their leaders and they're expecting them to build trust. How have you seen the expectations evolve in the last two years in terms of what people want to see from their leaders? 
Yeah, well, it's been quite interesting. So particularly when we had COVID, well, you know when, <laughs> when the world changed back in March 2020 mm-hmm. and people were just so anxious and they needed time to process and just having the camaraderie of their workmates just to kind of process what was going on in the world. But of course they couldn't catch up and do that face to face and everyone became mm-hmm. isolated and, you know, and then people had to put up with illness and looking after family members and homeschooling and it, everything got really hard for so many people. Mm-hmm. And in those times, you don't want a leader who's not trusting you, but you're not doing the work because they can't see you. Uh, you know, hassling you to get things done. So there really needed to be this extra layer of compassion Hmm. for people. And that still continued on. People are now saying, hey, well, that was good. Let's continue with it. And people want to see leaders that have that empathy and care and understand, you know, what's going on in their lives. Mm Because, you know, let's face it, it's very hard to delineate between our personal and work life. Right. Because when we have things going on in our home life, um, you know, our kid might be sick, uh, we might be going through a divorce, all those sorts of things, it impacts our work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being able to talk about it or just share that is important so that, you know, people understand what we're going through and can make an allowance for us as well mm-hmm. sometimes. Because uh, even as human beings, we can be quite tough on ourselves mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. push through when, you know, sometimes it, it might be time to just chill out and reflect. Right. <laughs> Give ourselves <laughs> a, 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 brief, a brief pause over what we cannot control. So, so how would you define then, how would you define then trust? You know, we'll turn to psychological safety in a moment, but I, I think you've really driven home here how important trust building is. What's your definition? How do you know when you when you have created trust? Yeah, well, I focus purely in a workplace situation. And, you know, trust, it's such a big word, even though it's a, a small word, but it means so many different things to different people. And you can really use it in so many different situations. But the best definition that I've come up with so far is that it's the ability to confidently rely on and predict mm. that others will do the right thing mm-hmm. and make good on their promises. Hmm. I like that predict. Yeah. yeah. So a, you can count on people. In a low risk. Yeah. It's just basically being able to rely on people. And that's so important. So in a workplace, you want to know that if you talk to Tom and he says, I'll get this work done, that he will. At the same time, you want to make sure that when Tom does the work, he's going to treat you nicely mm-hmm. and not go around and complain about you to other people hmm. or um, do the work at poor quality. We really need to be able to know that people have our back and they're there for us. Hmm. And and so let's take from that then to psychological safety, because that's another, that's a buzzword. You know, I think trust goes back a ways, but psychological safety has really kind of come into the lexicon. So what is psychological safety and how does it differ from trust? Yeah, well, psychological safety is when we can take risks know that we can be ourselves and we're not going to get reprimanded by our team. And it's different to trust in that with psychological safety, if you were to ask a team, do you feel safe? Mm -hmm. They can all pretty much answer and and, and give the same answer. 
and there'd be an agreement with that. But what's interesting with trust is that it's more of a personal experience. I see. And it differs for every individual and it's all dependent on our um, past experiences, uh, our perspectives and uh, you know, how we feel mm-hmm. at that particular time. But more contextual, uh, which huh. is quite fascinating. So you can have this situation where the organization or the team feels a high degree or a low degree of psychological safety. And yet within that team, there are radically differing levels of trust in a individual leader. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, because some people, their disposition is low trust. Right. Uh, So they come at the world from that and they just don't trust anyone. And and usually, uh, usually they can be, um, they don't like people so much. Right. Uh, they tend to <laughs> to always think people are out to get them. Mm-hmm. I've I've had people for, work for me like that, and you just think at some point you're like, what do I? What more do I have to do to show you that? <laughs> and then you realize it's not me. <laughs> There's just a bias yeah. to not trusting me or anyone. So I, I've exactly. been there. Yeah, and you can't get everyone to trust you. And it doesn't mean you're a bad person, but there are some people who just don't trust anyone. Hmm. Um, it, it's funny. I actually grew up, I can see now when I look at my childhood and who my parents are, that they're very low in trust. Hmm. And uh, they do lock themselves away. And I, I did have a, a, a period of time where I had no contact with them due to few issues, but um, it was funny being reconnected and, and going back to my childhood home and discovering that the gates of the house, they had put all this dark metal behind it so no one can look in. So they wow. completely locked, away, <laughs> locked, out the, <laughs> locked out the world. And, um, you know, when I, I talk to them, I'll, I'll say, oh, well, let's face it, you know, you're fine with COVID and locking yourself away because you don't like people. And they'll, they'll admit, yeah, I don't like people. Right, so it, so it worked. So some as people, a, some people just don't like people. So as a as a leader, then should you is it that you should seek to create psychological safety, but recognize with trust? Like, is psychological safety something you can almost always create, whereas trust is dependent on the other person? Like, how how should leaders think about it? Yeah, that's a really good perspective. So. You know, all leaders should create psychological safety and it's creating an environment where people feel safe to speak up. And it's not easy because some people, you know, they've been brought up in an environment where it hasn't been safe to Mm -hmm. speak up. And so it does take a lot of commitment from the leader to create that. And it's all to do with our fear of interpersonal risk. Mm. And interpersonal risk is this fear that we all have and it's subconscious that if we say or do the wrong thing, people are going to hurt us. Hmm. And so as human beings, we are always, you know, looking out subconsciously to make sure that we're safe and no one's going to hurt us. Um, You know, there's the extreme example of my parents that have locked themselves Mm -hmm. away Mm -hmm. from the world. But even in a workplace, you know, people are constantly worried that if they do the wrong thing, they're going to lose their job. Right. And and so it's really important for leaders to understand that everyone is running from that hmm. faulty 
perspective that they're not safe mm-hmm. and to create an environment that lessens that risk for people. And some people need a lot more work mm. to feel safe than others. So how do you go about doing that? So, you know, when you look at this concept of creating safety, fostering that trust, creating an environment of psychological safety, what would be your advice to leaders that they should focus on to achieve these things? To be honest, psychological safety, while it is important, it's not enough on its own. Okay. And so I believe that it needs to be combined with two other factors, and that is creating connection. Mm-hmm. And the, the underpinning that is stepping into a meaningful future. So by that, what I mean is that when you look at creating psychological safety, it's you know reducing that risk. And there are some things that you can do to help reduce that fear of being with people. Okay. And what studies show is that when we learn together, mm-hmm. learning can be safe. And when we see that we're not getting told off, uh, it's it's interesting. I do quite a lot of research in companies when I work with them. And one of the things that I'll find in my research is that some people will say about the leader, oh, if I make a mistake, they don't tell me off. Mm. And it seems simple, mm-hmm. uh, but it can be really, really important for people. And, mm. you know, when we come together as a team, you'll often find teams that are performing really well are doing some sort of learning together uh, that can be really hmm. important. But if we look at that bit and then if we go into creating connection, mm-hmm. I see creating connection as being a little bit like connecting the dots okay. and jigsaw together for people. So in any sort of workplace, there are so many different moving parts mm-hmm. and as a leader, we want to connect people to one another. That's really important. Mm-hmm. But we also want to connect for people how things work together. So the priorities, the projects, the, all those sorts of things. As a leader, we need to explain how things actually work for people to help people have meaning in their work. So, for mm-hmm. example, you know, a lot of times people might be working on a project. Mm-hmm. But they're just working on one particular segment of that project mm. and they're not seeing the big full picture. Mm. So it's really important to help um, people understand that big picture of what they're trying to achieve mm. to help them understand the meaning of their work as well. Mm-hmm. Because that becomes really important that people can see that the work they're doing has meaning, that it's benefiting others. And so helping people understand that is important, but often leaders, you know, they're too busy or they, they don't right. realize that thing. And then underpinning that is stepping into a meaningful future. Hmm. So what's really interesting is that our brains need to know that, you know, all the hard work is going to be worth it. Hmm. And so helping people see the future, where we're trying to get to, and how their career and the work that they're doing fits into that helps people feel safe in the environment as well. So it's really, you can see why, you know, the demands of leadership are significant. I mean, this connecting them and seeing the future, you know, building the trust, it's, it's time consuming, isn't it, to do these things. And, and a lot of them, I imagine, in, in, in the virtual world are even tougher to do. Is that 
Have you seen that with your clients these last couple of years? Yeah, well, this was one of the reasons why I wrote the book because people were saying to me, oh, how do I lead people when they're, you know, when when we're all scattered? Mm -hmm. But there are things that can be done to make this process easier. And really at the intersection of psychological safety and connection are meetings or or Mm one-on-ones. And so... You know, we can't always, of course, have face-to-face time, but, you know, even just Zoom is really good. Just to have those regular Mm check-ins with people to build that safety and the connection and that future. Yeah, I saw something in your book when you wrote the fact that no one, if if your leader will not have a regular meeting with you, you will not trust them. And I thought that was, that kind of struck me because, you know, so many people complain about meetings, right? I know you had another diagram where you said meetings are kind of at the heart of building trust. Everyone complains about meetings. They complain that they're a waste of time. They complain that they're nothing gets done. But what you're really arguing is that it is not work that's necessarily getting done, but the work of building connection of building trust that occurs in these meetings. Is that right? Yeah, so I actually believe if if people are complaining about meetings, they're doing them wrong. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> so it's it's really about changing how you run that meeting. And one of the techniques to really build trust, and it's a simple technique, is is just the questions that we ask people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, too often leaders think leading is about telling people what to do. You know, if you go back to the story mm-hmm. that I told you mm-hmm. at the start, but, you know, we really need to focus on asking people questions and getting them to think for themselves. And meetings really are about asking the right questions, getting everyone aligned to what's going on. Um, and one-on-ones are important in that respect as well. Um, it's, it's interesting. I was doing some research in a company. Now, we had a whole lot of floods in Brisbane in Australia back earlier in the year. And in this organization, they you know, had struggled with the floods and all that sort of stuff. And so what happened was one of the executives didn't run the uh, quarterly meeting when everyone had come back from holidays. And when I was interviewing staff about how leaders can build trust with them, they were really freaked out. They're going, I haven't had this meeting. I need this meeting. They actually wanted it because they needed that connection to their leader and to be able to ask questions. Mm. So that the absence of that meeting was, was quite stark for them that they haven't, they had, they needed that time and that presence. Yeah. And, and it was stressing them out. Uh, and and that's not unusual. I, I hear that a lot. Um, and you know, there was a, a CFO that I was coaching, and he refused to do meetings. Hmm. Uh, well, his staff. But what was happening was that his staff kept coming to him with issues all the time. And you know, through getting him to learn how to run meetings more efficiently and more, oh, let's just say, interestingly. Right. Uh, he was able to reduce that wasted time with people interacting him all the right. time. Okay, so you kind of outline, you know, the work that leaders have to put in to create this trust and this feeling of safety. Now, in your book, you talk about 
just creating safety is not enough, you know, and that it has to be balanced by accountability and that when you have this kind of combination of trust and accountability, you get to performance. Let's talk about accountability in a moment, but what happened? What do you get if you create safety, but not accountability? Yeah. So one of the things that uh, I show in the book is that I call it the achievement zone model. So when you have low accountability and low safety, it creates apathy. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a team zone where the leader is, you know, not really a people person right. <laughs> and, and not really into leading people, prefer to, would prefer to do the technical work mm-hmm. than actually lead people. And so that team uh, f- feels quite, you know, worried about doing the wrong thing. Sometimes these leaders are quite volatile, mm. uh, so mm. they tend to tell people off. So people are worried about making a mistake or doing the wrong thing. So you'll find that people in that team are just basically spending their energy not getting told off. Mm. So they're just doing the bare minimum. Right. And then if you, if we have high psychological safety but low accountability, it's what I call the abatement zone. So mm. that's it's a bit like a comfort zone. But what's really interesting with these teams is that performance is declining, but mm-hmm. because the teams had some past success that they're still riding on, mm. they don't realize that they're not doing as well as they used to because mm. they've got that mindset. So they still, really good. they still think they're, they're great. <laughs> yeah, but they're not learning, they're not growing, and they're actually spending a lot of their time just maintaining the status quo and just, you know, not they're not fixing anything or they're not innovating, but they're just doing what they've always done. Right. Gradually Uh, slipping into irrelevance. (laughs) Yeah. And you find, it's interesting, I find a lot of leaders, they will be in this zone because, you know, they they might have had some big personal stress or Mm -hmm. something's gone on in their life and they're just coasting uh, for, for a while, not realizing that, they're not challenging their employees to do any better. Okay. They're not being challenged themselves and things are kind of falling apart, but they think they're doing really well. Then there's the anxiety zone, which is where you have that um, high accountability. Things are getting done, but people don't feel safe. Mm. And so you'll find a lot of teams in high pressure industries where you know it's really important to get work out, get things done. Right. Uh, fall into the anxiety zone. And sometimes it's because you have technical leaders that don't know how to create mm-hmm. safety, but people feel quite stressed and burnt out, uh, working really hard, but just don't have the support of their leader or, or even their peers when things get really tough. And so eventually they just crack, I guess, and you have to, you have to replace them. <laughs> Yeah, so they, you know, usually will drop down into the apathy zone and, you know, that's where they're, they're pretty much, you know, looking for another job. Right. Um, it's it's just too hard. They're burnt out. And, and I think that's a, it's a really interesting quadrant model. And of course, in the top right, we'll get to in the moment is, you know, the, where you really want to be. But I think it's really interesting because it, it talks about you actually don't do people a favor if you just create safety and trust. That uh, performance plus trust is really what we're after as leaders. 
Yeah, well, it's with people have to deliver. Mm-hmm. And so when you have that safety where people aren't delivering, that's not a high-performing team. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's just as, you know, it's it's a pretty bad team. No one, uh, I don't like being in the Bateman's own team because hmm. it's where, you know, ideas go to die. Right. There's group think. <laughs> There's no innovation. People are just doing the bare minimum. There's no advantage to take risks because low performance is tolerated and high performance is not rewarded. Exactly. And it's really horrible for high performers because, you know, they'll come in with a good idea or we should do things this way. uh, And everyone quietens them down Hmm. and tells them to just ignore Just just keep quiet. No one wants to change. So you've talked a bit about how to create trust. How do you create accountability? What would be the, the key steps for a leader to take? Yeah, well, accountability is very much two ways. So it's about leaders being accountable and it's also about demanding accountability. Hmm, Tell me more about that. Yeah, well, accountability, getting accountability from people in, in some ways is all about communication. Okay. And it's just being very clear on what needs to be done and how... And uh, you know the priorities, and really communicating that in a clear way, and then pulling people up or talking to them about it, uh, the the work that they've delivered, in terms of you know how it meets the standard. So mm-hmm. it's it's really about being very clear with directives, mm-hmm. and then holding people to that standard. Hmm. And what is the two? You said it's two way. So that's what you're looking for. What should, what's the kind of other way that you have to match that to bring about accountability? Yeah, well, it's interesting. People won't be accountable if they see their boss isn't accountable. Hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting. I was working again with another leadership team and I did research with employees to see, again, ask them questions about what they needed from the leadership team to trust them. And people were complaining, I found this quite fascinating, that leaders weren't being held to account. They were missing their KPIs. Okay. And rather than anything being done about it, it was kind of being celebrated. Hmm. <laughs> and so employees were going, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why did, why did John miss his goals, KPIs this quarter or this month. And how's that going for the company? Because that, that's not a good sign. So people actually were wanting to see their leaders being held to account. It, you know, it, it creates a bit of a an us versus them mm-hmm. world where leaders aren't having to be accountable for achieving goals, mm. but employees are expected to. And people don't trust that situation. Uh, so if, if we want our people to do what we want them to do, we also have to show that we do stuff as well. You know, no one wants a boss that sits right. around on his chair all day and does nothing. Which again goes back to this idea that this old model of leadership where you just give direct directions uh, and expect people to execute just is not going to work in today's environment that you really need to match what you're requesting from your people. Yeah, that's right. And and really, when it comes to trust, trust is a social contract and it, it's a relationship between one or more people. 
So we can't expect people to do things if we're not doing it ourselves. And people are watching leaders. They're, they're really watching to see that they're matching their words and their actions. Hmm. And we need that. That's how our brains actually trust a situation. It's looking to to actually see that leaders are going to do what they say they're going to do. Right, right. And now I think we're in the position as in the world of work with the ability to switch careers, but also the ability, I think about something like Slack, you know, to have informal social networks within companies that the kind of network that you can use to share either positively or negatively your impressions about your trust in your leadership exists like never before that there's much less room to hide (laughs) if you're a poor leader but there's also much more opportunity if you're a committed leader to be celebrated and have attract a following so i think the stakes have never been higher Is, is that what you see in the work you're doing to build trust well, I think that's actually a positive that mm-hmm. there is this transparency now that we've never had before. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just like, you know, places like Glassdoor where you can actually read reviews of mm-hmm. a company culture and those sorts of things just helps people to see what's really going on. I love the fact that visibility is becoming more important Uh because people really need to, you know, see what's going on. When we don't, can't see what's going on, we don't trust the situation and we pull back. And so leaders who are really open and who share information and who, you know, are visible even on the floor mm-hmm. that's making an appearance is really important for people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, we now expect more for leaders And I think, you know, what you've really outlined with this, with your book and with your, I love your four quadrants, you know, of of what is possible, you know, when you combine that trust and that accountability, get to the, you know, as you say, the achievement zone. So yeah, super, super helpful uh, in terms of talking about it. Uh, I'll just leave you with one question, which is, you know, if you're, if you were to give advice to leaders listening on the number one thing you should start doing to move your team into that zone, what would it be? Ah, well, you know what, this is probably going to sound a little bit um, out there, but what I think is the most important um, that underlines, underpins all of this is that leaders who are self-aware and by that, I mean they're taking the time to reflect on their leadership and they're not just assuming, well, I'm a leader, therefore, you know, that's in my title, mm-hmm. I'm a leader. They're actually doing the work. Hmm. And it really involves you know, spending the time reviewing what you're doing and, and how you're behaving. And we, we spend a lot of time focusing on what we're achieving, but not really assessing how we're achieving it hmm. and it's it's interesting i i was you know as i said i do quite a bit of research and i i've actually found that a high achievement zone leader what i found in my research was that they reflect on their leadership abilities weekly hmm. uh, and in fact they were even using the quadrant model that's in the book and just questioning how they've created safety this week and how they've created 
connection and and just you know going through that with themselves in a weekly meeting, which I found quite fascinating. But it's you know there's a study uh, that was done by Dr. Tash Urich, and she found that only five to fifteen percent of leaders are actually self-aware. Uh, but we need to be self-aware and to really honestly assess how we're going. Um, you know, one of the biggest complaints you'll hear in a workplace are, you know, people get defensive when they're giving feedback or mm-hmm. they don't want to improve. Uh, but it, it really involves all of us should really be sitting down and assessing how we're really behaving uh, and what we can do to create that safety for others and create that really the high achievement zone mm-hmm. workplace culture. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point to to end on, you know, that the the need to make that commitment to reflect on your own leadership, to reflect on the fact that as a leader, it is your job to create trust and psychological safety, but also the balance that with performance. I think, you know, it, it's reflective of what leadership is evolving to. Um, but also a really useful framework to to apply. So no, I appreciate you uh, you sharing your book with me and I appreciate you coming on the podcast to talk about this because I think these are concepts that um, every leader can and should embed into their their communication and and their their work. So thank you so much, uh, Marie Claire for uh, for your time today. My pleasure, Bart. It's um, been really fun. Thank you. Yeah, and so if people want to get your book, uh, where can they go f- and find it? It's uh, available on Amazon and Apple Books and it pretty much all, all good booksellers uh, do have it. So you can find a copy, just do a search and you and should be able to find a copy. We can, put, we can put a link in the show notes and I can attest it's eminently readable, very practical, and uh, I highly recommend it. So yeah, hopefully uh, others enjoy it too. So thank you so much for waking up early to talk and be a guest on the Inspire Podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Bart. I really appreciate it as well. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Marie Claire Ross, the author of Trusted to Thrive. It's a great book. I encourage you to read it. It really demystifies how to build trust, what goes into it, why it's lost. And you're kind of left with the thought of, boy, it's a lot of work to create trust, but so important. Uh, Next time on the pod, I'm joined by Dean Becker. Dean is the head of adaptive learning, and he joins me to talk about why this time, these last few years, have put so much strain on us, this move to hybrid virtual world, and it's kind of lowered our resilience and how that manifests and what to do about it. So if you or your teams are feeling at all burnt out, faced with uh, incessant uncertainty, well worth a listen. In the meantime, if you're enjoying the pod, rate and review it. Always appreciate it. See you next time on the Inspire Podcast.